If you do not have a Bible, there should be a, hopefully a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. And we refer to that as our Pew Bible, and you can find this passage on page 224 in the Pew Bible. 1 Samuel 17. It's been a few Lord's Days since I've had the privilege of being back in the pulpit, and this just happens to be, by happenstance, no, in the Lord's providence, where we are in our study through 1 Samuel, where we get to look at a very, very familiar passage to most, the story of David and Goliath, and thankful that we get to do so on this Resurrection Sunday. Before we read the passage, I also just want to take just a moment uh, and express on behalf of the Kinbergs, my family, in the woods, the two elders who are on staff uh, full-time vocationally, that in itself is a gift of the Lord, uh, want to just extend our gratitude to the body for pastor appreciation last Sunday, uh, just overwhelmed with cards and gifts, um, just wanted to say thank you. We are so thankful to be able to uh, serve the flock here at Grace Covenant Church, and we give God all the glory for that. Now, looking at God's word, please follow along as I read. Now, this is long, too, so just hang in there with me. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soku, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Eve's Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had, a bronze, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. 
And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to them, when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul, the king, said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped on his his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. 
And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way to Shariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answer, answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Hear the word of the Lord. After hearing that passage read, it almost just stands alone and there's not much need for me to go on, but I'm going to attempt with the Lord's help. But just a wonderful narrative, really shining bright the glory of our God and that the battle belongs to the Lord. And we see David anointed by God in chapter 16 to be the king of Israel and playing out living by faith right in front of our eyes in this chapter. Now, when we were looking at this chapter, I thought, you know, we should just focus in on the five stones that David decided to pick up out of the brook. And we all know that those stones represent the five points of Calvinism, right? So we're going to spend some time. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. They don't. They don't. Although that would be fun to do. That's not where we're going this morning. I thought after reading a long narrative, it would just break it just a little bit with a little bit of humor. 
But I do want to start with a question that is important. If some of you are going, five points of Calvin, just come up afterwards. I'm happy to, to talk to you about that. This question I want us to think about this morning, how would you use the story of David and Goliath to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to a non-Christian? So after hearing that passage read, you know, in our Sunday school class, usually it's kind of a bite size. This is a long passage filled with much detail. How would you use this particular story of David and Goliath to explain the gospel to a non-Christian? I want that question to be resonating in our minds as we begin to look at this passage. What I want us to not be tempted to do, because we're Americans and we love the great underdog story, is to start thinking that somehow we are David. We connect with his story of of really living up to this amazing battle against a giant and being used by the Lord to slay a giant. This is not a can-do kind of moralism story. Many of of you have probably heard or uh, someone has referenced a, a sermon by Matt Chandler years ago where he yells out to the crowd, you are not David. It's good for us to hear we, we can resonate with, with other characters in this story, and we, we hopefully will have a chance to do that, but I want us to see that when we look at David in this particular passage, when we look at Goliath, this giant that stands before him, our gaze should be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David. Now, there are a group of people in great need in this passage, and that is where we actually find ourselves connecting with most we see the Israelites in great fear. And when Goliath presents himself, actually wanting to flee from the scene, that is where we should be resonating with. So there is a people in great need in this story, and I want us to begin there. We're going to look at the people of Israel, of Israel the Israelites, the, the ones who have, who have come to this battle against the Philistines, and we're going to look at David and we're going to look at Goliath. But in part, I want us to begin with looking at the people in great need. So by way of reminder in church history, in God's word, this is not the first time Israel has faced giants. And their track record is not great as we look at the Old Testament. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and led them on the verge of the promised land. So we're getting into the book of Numbers. And in Numbers 13... Moses sends 12 spies to go out, if you remember, to the promised land to check it out and bring back a report. When they come back, 10 of them give a dismal report. The land is amazing, flowing with milk and honey, but it is occupied by giants. So 10 out of the 12 spies come back and they basically convince the people while that's a great place, we can't inhabit that land because of the, the bigness of the people, and we are like grasshoppers in their eyes. Two, Joshua and Caleb try to rally and say, the Lord will give it to us, Numbers chapter 14. But the people as a whole feared the giants and refused to enter the land. So then we hear that Moses begins pleading with the people. This is some of what he said. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land 
for the Lord is with us. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. That was their response. They wanted to stone the leaders of the people. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? They have lost sight of the living God, the one that the battle belongs to, and their, their gaze has been upon these big people and it has scared them to death. It has caused them to stop believing in the one true God and being led by fear of the people. And as a result, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, the whole congregation, if you remember, that came out of Egypt would die in the wilderness. He would, he would only give the land to the next generation. So for 40 years, there is this wandering that happens in the desert under God's judgment while a generation who did not believe dies out. Now we get to 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Philistines have encroached deep into Israel's territory. If you look at the beginning of this passage, they have made their way into Judah. And as you're thinking about where they were driven out and now they're coming back in, it makes you wonder what's going on in the hearts and minds of the people. Are they going to do exactly what, what the, the people previously did on the cusp of entering into the promised land? They are back in the same place where Israel had been intimidated by giants. And now one of those giants has returned. So when Joshua, going back again, conquered the land, the Anakim relocated to Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. The descendants of the Nephilim. Gath is Goliath's hometown, and so he probably was a descendant of the Anakim. Now, Goliath has taunted Israel, this detail's important, every morning and every evening for 40 days. How long were the people wandering in the desert? 40 years. Now this trial before the people once again, 40 days of the giant coming and inviting them into this one-on-one -on -one combat. This is their time of testing, and again, they are failing miserably to believe and to trust in God. They are believing that this giant is unbeatable. From top down, this is Saul the king and all of Israel. When they hear the words of Goliath, they are dismayed and greatly afraid. In verse 24, we read, the sight of them makes them flee. So it is without a doubt clear that this foe before them is great. And the author, inspired by the Spirit in 1 Samuel 17, takes pains to describe the detail of this Philistine champ. He was huge, a mountain of a man. And the description, we're not given in, in our um, understanding of measurement, but the, the man, this mountain of a man, was approximately nine feet, six inches tall. So if you're thinking, man, that's pretty tall, think of an official size or standard basketball hoop. His head would be in the net. That's how tall this man was. Just a huge specimen. Now, if you're going, man, this sounds like such a myth, just in modern time, the tallest man in recent history was Robert Waldlow. If you've ever looked through the Guinness Book of 
uh, world records. From 1918 to 1940, short life, but he was 8 feet 11 inches. So this is not outside the realm of possibilities. Goliath was a real man who lived in a real place during a real time. This event really happened. His clothing of armor weighed 5,000 shekels. That's about 126 pounds that he carried of weight on him. Then we get the description that his, his legs were also covered with this bronze armor. His shield was so big that he had a man carry that before him. And then we get the description of his weaponry. We're told that he has a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, just the head of that spear. Connecting it or, or relating it to a weaver's beam was approximately 15 to 16 pounds, just the head of the spear. Just an amazing display of might that would fear most people. We find this Goliath, this description of a giant, and when you look at the Hebrew description of the, the chain mail, the, the armor, it's really interesting. It's, it's used similarly to what you would find on a, a serpent. The, the, the word just translates scales. This was a huge beast, a huge serpent, symbolizing what God's people has been fighting from the beginning. And you have this gigantic beast before them, representing ultimately the enemy of God, Satan himself. He was standing there ridiculing the people of God, mocking the people of God. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. Now, as we think about the scared Israelites and this giant of a man before them, there is a unique sense in which they need a representative. It's amazing how this story comes about. This is not a, a typical battle where all of Israel will fight against all of the Philistines, but in this unique setting, there is one champion of the Philistines who comes forward and asks for one champion of Israel to come and fight him. One-to-one -one combat, whoever wins, decides the victory of this whole battle. And so there is a need for someone to represent the people, to go forward on behalf. So whoever would fight Goliath would be the one representing all of Israel. Now, you hear the description of the giant of the Philistines, and if you remember where we've been in 1 Samuel, the description originally of Saul was similar in some ways. He was head and shoulders above the rest, a handsome man. And yet their giant was not stepping forward, was not willing to represent the people. And so the obvious question was, what would Israel's king do in response to this defiant blasphemy from the giant? Well, what we read from the passage, he's not willing to step out on his own, but he's willing to make quite a, a prize for whoever would be willing to go and fight. The king would enrich the man who kills him with great riches. This is a priestly reward. I'm sorry, princely reward. Great riches, membership into the royal family via the hand of Saul's daughter, and lifelong, really what this looks like probably was tax exemption for his whole family. And so just 
Side note, if you look at the end of this passage and you read and you go, wait, I thought, I thought Saul knew David. Wasn't David the one that would come and play the harp and soothe Saul? And when, da- when Saul is asking David, who is your father? Who, who do you come from? It's not that he doesn't know who David is, but needing to be reminded that it's Jesse the father of David, who will get to actually experience the fruit of what this offer is that's been presented for whoever would step forward and represent Israel in fighting Goliath. Okay, now back. So the people, in a very unique way, need a representative. And again, by reminder of what happens in chapter 16, the Lord provides a representative. The Lord has provided not just any young man, but in chapter 16, we see that David is anointed by God to be king. And this detail is very important. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him from that day forward. Not just any man stepping forward, but a Spirit-anointed man. And so David comes into this story as a glorious type of Christ. If you remember, Jesus Christ was anointed in his baptism. The Spirit fell upon him as he goes forth to accomplish all that God has sent him to accomplish as the Messiah, the anointed one. And so David is introduced into our story, and he's sent by his father Jesse to deliver a care package to his brothers, a care package of food for his three eldest brothers and for their commander. He arrives on the scene to find the Israelite soldiers cowering at the sound of Goliath's voice. We are told, and this is a great little detail, David leaves the baggages and runs to the front ranks. Earlier, when Saul was being introduced to the people, if you remember, he's the one that hid behind the baggages and did not want to come out. And we see the anointed king to come not hiding behind the baggages, but running, running to the front ranks in order to see what is going on and to stand against God's enemies right in the face of danger. And so from the outset, there is something about David that is different than everyone else on the scene. David does not see at this moment as everyone else sees. He arrives on the scene of the battle and with different eyes and different ears, He is approaching this situation. He sees Goliath, but does not measure according to human standards. We've seen this theme. The man is looking on the outside, but the Lord looks on the inside. And everyone falls prey to this temptation. We look on the outside and determine based off of what we see how things are going to be. And yet David is able at this time to see this giant, but to not see him the same way that everyone else is seeing him because it's invoking fear and wanting them to flee in everyone else's minds. But David is not measuring according to human standards. Sure, there were giant proportions, oversized armor and weapons, and the mocking words. David sees his size and measures it against his God. Goliath's mocking words are aimed at a living God, and David knows this living God. His motivation in this moment as he enters the front ranks is defending God's honor 
also a desire to defend God's people and counting fully in all of this, as we will see, on God's faithfulness and power to save. Very different than everyone else on the scene. Now, the first time we hear David speak in Scripture is verse 26. This is the first time he speaks, and where, the, the, as we look at the words, the words coming out reveal a God-centered worldview. A living God gives a radically different view of things when he is your living God. Your, your whole worldview will be altered permanently when you fully rest and trust in the God who created all things and sustains all things. That radically shifts how you approach anything this, that this life throws at you. And so we see this with David, how he talks. And David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In this moment, David is functioning as the paraclete. Andrew and I had the opportunity of hearing just an amazing pastor served in a church in Wales for 50 years, Jeff Thomas, speak to us on the ministry of encouragement. And there was part of his talk where he was talking about the paraclete. And we know if you think about the paraclete, the one who encourages, the one who helps you overcome, you immediately think of the Holy Spirit. In the Roman army, though, there was an actual position referred to as the paraclete. And this person would be set aside. He would be the one who would build up the troops. He would give inspiration, comfort, encouragement. He would be the one rallying and saying, we can do this. We can overcome the enemy. That's the paraclete. David is functioning as the paraclete in this moment. He is helping the army of the living God understand who it is that they serve and who it is that is in control of all things. He is letting them know that it's not in our own strength that we will overcome, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Do you see this? Do you know this? Do you believe this? He is stirring them up. Trust in God. Now, as we look at this unfold, and we're going to move rather quickly, you might say that David faces, in one sense, three giants, three Goliaths. We see, ultimately, he faces Goliath, but his first encounter is his oldest brother, Eliab. And he faces some challenges with his brother, then King Saul, and then ultimately with Goliath. So first, just briefly, this would be verses 28 through 30. His eldest brother is criticizing him. I mean, he really gives it to him. And you have to wonder, this was the same brother who stood in line in front of Samuel, the prophet, and Samuel said, no, you're not the chosen king, and kept moving down the line. And then ultimately, they had to bring David in from shepherding off the land in, and they would not have their feast until he was present. And in front of all of his brothers, Samuel looks and this is the one who is anointed by God to be the king of Israel. There must have been something stewing in Eliab because of the way that he lays into his brother. Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep? Not a lot of sheep with a lot of resp responsibilities. This was degrading. This was, this was like 
really talking some smack to his brother, the, the few sheep in the wilderness. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Your motives, David, are all wrong. You should not be here. Now, if you have siblings and you've ever been talked to like that, maybe by someone that you look up to and respect, your older brother or sister, that can be devastating. David at that point could have just shut down and left. And yet we see this first encounter, this first battle, this first Goliath, so to speak. David continues speaking the truth instead of shutting down. Maybe a small little battle, but it was happening right there in his heart and mind as he's hearing from his older brother, you should not even be here. Then he's moved into the presence of the king because of what he is saying. Our words matter. What he says leads him to, or it, it, it causes him to be led in front of the king's council. And in front of Saul, he kind of has this second little battle, so to speak. Saul looks at him, looks at Goliath, and basically is, is discouraging him from, from going because he is just a youth. And this warrior has been a warrior since his youth. There's just no way, David, that you could possibly be the one that's going to represent all of us. David pulls from his history what God has led him through to help the king understand that he actually is the one. So Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight because you're a youth. And David then has a chance to respond. And he explains where he has been. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb, and then we hear how David, by the power of God, was able to overcome the lion or the bear, able to strike down both lions and bears. But I want us to hear this this morning, that David is not sitting here sharing his experiences, making much of him, his skill or his audacity to fight these beasts to protect the sheep. But he specifically lets the king know that it was God who delivered him. It was God, the Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, and he is the one who will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. Now Saul, the king, hears this, and says, go, and the Lord be with you. And just a little application here as we continue to move on. Lessons learned from experience. It is the Lord who delivers us. So it is good as we reflect on how David uses his past to help guide his future, encourage us this morning. It was God who was with him, who protected him, and gave him success in all those previous fights. This is the lesson that David uses to apply to his new challenge. The Lord who delivered me from all of that will be the one who delivers me from the hand of the Philistine. And so one commentator writes this, and I think it's really helpful. Faith is sustained in the present and for the present as it remembers God's provision in the past. The rich history of God's past goodness nurtures faith in our current trials. So we look back and recount how God has provided 
to bolster our faith to approach and deal with our current trials. This is exactly what David is doing, and he's proclaiming God's faithfulness, God's power, his deliverance, and it persuades the king. Because you've got to understand, in order to be this unique representative, the king would have to commission it, would have to bless it and allow him to actually go and do. If Saul had shut it down, I'm not sure how this story would, would unfold from this point on, but according to God's plan, Saul hearing from the, word, the mouth of David, he lets him go. And so being commissioned by Saul, we see without a shadow of doubt that David is the representative of the people of God. Now, you may not be familiar with this terminology, but federal headship is very important in understanding God's plan of redemptive history. Pastor Andrew, on our, in our Good Friday service, began to un- unpack this for us as we, he took us back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, what God had called Adam to do and to be about as the representative of mankind, and what unfortunately happened in Genesis 3, the fall, He was our federal head. He represented all of us, and this was by God's design. So he took us to Romans chapter 5. I want you to just hear from verse 17 again to just refresh and remind. Adam was our representative. So his fall became our fall. Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what the Apostle Paul is doing in Romans chapter 5 is helping us understand federal headship. The bad news is that Adam is our federal head. He fell, we all fall. The good news in Romans chapter 5 is that there is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in all that he did in life, death, and resurrection was our representative. So when we look at this passage and David being uniquely uh, called to be the representative of Israel, we we should then think ahead. We should look forward and think, okay, this is a type of the one to come. David is the representative for the people of God, and Christ will come and be that representative. He is our federal head. Now, I say he is our federal head. There is a distinction, those in Christ and those outside of Christ. If you are in this room this morning and you have repented of your sins and believed upon Christ, received him by faith, you are in Christ and he is your representative, meaning what he has done, it is applied to you. If you are outside of Christ, if you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, if you are still living as the ruler and reigner reign over your own life, if you're on the throne of your life, if God is not your treasure, your delight, your hope, you are still in your sins, and Adam is still your federal head. And so we see very clearly in Scripture, the wages of sin is death. He fell into sin. We all fall into sin. We need to see that clear distinction this day. We praise God for his his setting up of this federal headship because there's good news in the gospel. And so as we look at this, Jesus is the true and better Adam 
And here in our story, Jesus is the better David. So like David is about to wage war against the enemy of God, Jesus waged war against Satan, sin, and death in a representative capacity. He is the federal head. Okay, before he gets to Goliath, Saul clothed David with armor, the helmet of bronze and the coat of mail, and strapped on the sword from King Saul, he attempts to begin walking in the armor of the king, but we hear this twice, it did not work out because it was not tested. Now, many of us go to like our Sunday school hour and think, he must have just been this puny little individual and Saul's armor was so big that it just was so huge on him and it just did not fit at all. And we're just not given the, the, the same detail in scripture. The, the verbiage of it was not tested, meaning he was a shepherd. He did not wear all of this attire to go and fight in the battles. This was not what he was used to or accustomed to. It's not like this king didn't understand that the size of your armor actually matters, and he would just throw it on this little, little tyke, and it just fell to the ground. He was unable to even walk, but it wasn't tested. This isn't what, wasn't what he was used to, to fighting in. And so he throws it off and he proceeds with what he knows, his staff in hand, his sling in the other hand. And it's good for us to hear this. As a shepherd, he used these things to to protect his flock, his father's sheep. And so here, as Israel's anointed savior, David will use the same resources to strike down another beast, from endangering the flock of God. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he had disdain for him. And we, we heard the story read earlier, so we're not going to go through all the details. But San, uh, David approaches this Philistine, and it's just a beautiful expression of his faith in the living God as the Philistine is mocking and jeering And David stands, and it reminds me of Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. David is wholly trusting that the battle belongs to the Lord as he stands before this giant. And we read from the story that David topples him with a wound to the head. Not by accident, this description, a wound to the head. Where we were on Friday night in Genesis 3.15, where we hear the first gospel introduced in God's very word, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And on that day, David's victory is the nation's victory. David saves the entire nation as their representative. Think for a moment how this type points to Christ. Christ was 40 days tempted and did not succumb to temptation, but overcame temptation. He was not defeated in the temptation. This same Jesus is the giant killer. He brings victory to his people as their representative. A good question to ask is, how how did Jesus 
accomplish this victory. In this story, we clearly see there are weapons used. There's a, a, a giant standing before him, and he is slain by David with one stone to the forehead. We see that. We understand that. We can kind of tangibly touch that and feel that. But how did Jesus accomplish this victory? How is he truly our representative? Well, as the story continues, there's just amazing details that I want us to connect to Christ. We read that David cuts the head off the giant, not with his own sword, but with the enemy's sword. So for a moment, let's just think about that. The enemy's weapon was used against him. So the sword of Goliath turned against himself, the weapon by which he would use probably many, many times to annihilate his foes was employed by that very foe to sever his head from his body. This was a symbol to help us understand what Christ has accomplished as well. So I want us to think about this. If Satan is the ultimate enemy, what is his weapon. Satan's weapon is the power of death. How do we know that? Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. And I want you to hear this. Christ uses Satan's weapon to defeat him. That's how he accomplishes victory on our behalf as our representative. So listen to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the very same things. Jesus became flesh. He came from heaven to earth, born a babe. He took on flesh that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjects to lifelong slavery. We are all slaves to sin in great fear of death. How does Jesus use the enemy's weapon against him? By dying on the cross for our sins. How amazing is God's plan of redemptive history? We see David using the weapon of Goliath to cut off his head. And he carries that head around in victory. Into Jerusalem he carries that head. They don't have uh, they're, they're the same idea of what we have uh, uh, David setting up his reign in Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. David walks into this city that is not yet the city with the head of the enemy. And then he takes the enemy's army armor and puts it in his tent. Interesting description there. So we first see that Christ uses the, the weapon of Satan to destroy Satan, to defeat Satan. And then we see a little bit later this armor being put in his tent. And I want to just think for a little bit more about this. Carrying the head to Jerusalem and placing the armor of Goliath in the tent. This is exactly what Jesus does. In Luke chapter 11, I want you to hear this description. Jesus speaking, when a strong man fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, Jesus being the stronger man, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, Jesus says, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Just as David takes the armor of his enemy, Goliath, and puts it in a tent, the stronger man in defeating Satan takes the same. He takes his armor in which he trusted and he divides the spoil. It is to let us know that there is one who is stronger who will conquer sin and death and his name is Jesus. When we think about the gospel, what we spent time looking at on Friday night and then this Resurrection Sunday, it all revolves around death. You might be like, man, there's a lot of death going on this morning. The death of Goliath on the battlefield. The gospel, what we heard read from Matthew earlier in, the, in this service in 1 Corinthians 15, you need to understand the apex of Jesus' ministry and of his life was when he died. That was the apex of his achievement. The gospel begins with these two words, Christ died, 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, the Apostle Paul writes, that Christ died. Right at the center of our religion, what we bank our lives upon, our faith is upon the death of our representative, Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The resurrection was absolutely essential. It was absolutely glorious and it confirmed what Jesus achieved in dying. It was the confirmation of all that he had done in his life and in his death. God saying, amen, truly, truly, by raising his son from the dead, he truly has conquered all that he set out to conquer. He truly has redeemed a people for himself. His blood was shed for his bride. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. With the few moments we have this morning, I want to just think about how Christ's Death, burial, and resurrection changed death forever. He changed death from a hopeless curse that we all have in Adam to a happy homecoming. When we hear from God's word, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? What Christ accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection is taking the sting out of death. Where once because of Adam, our death led to what we deserved, eternal punishment, because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we now actually have a glorious homecoming when we die. That the, the, the lack of beating of your physical heart and you lay dead on the ground is not the end for believers in Christ. It is just the beginning of this glorious homecoming of our Father saying, Come, well done, good and faithful servant, because you're standing clothed in the righteousness of his Son, your representative. Christ changed death, death forever when, when he, he changed death from entrance into eternal fire to entrance into eternal fellowship with God. When you stand in Adam, you are at enmity with God. The Bible tells us that you're a child of wrath. 
There is not fellowship and communion between the holy and righteous God of the universe when you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But what Christ has accomplished has allowed there to be much joy and happiness in entering into eternal fellowship with God. He changed death from the experience that we experience when a loved one passes away from grieving without hope to grieving with hope. We hear from 1 Thessalonians 4.13, the Apostle Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Why do we in Christ have hope? Because on the third day Christ was raised from the dead. So it's not just this idea of a, of a Savior who is dead that we worship when we gather on the Lord's Day. We worship a Savior that is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. He is alive. He is our risen King. That changes everything. Where there once was no hope when someone that you love has perished. We don't grieve like those who have no hope. We have a representative Christ Jesus and we are in Christ. Therefore, we do not mourn like the world mourns. This life is but a vapor, but life in Christ lasts for eternity. And lastly, what we see in our story, this conclusion, is that once the giant is slain by, by David, the response of the people also point forward to our response. There was great shouting from the ranks of Israel that day when the Philistine champion was laying there with his head chopped off, completely and utterly destroyed and defeated. That shout that bursts forth from the rank of the Israelites is that same foreshadowing of the joy of the redeemed men and women when, when you finally realize what Christ has accomplished on the cross. When that glorious salvation flashes before your eyes and penetrates your heart, that one stood in your place as your substitute, that the death that we all deserve to die, he died. When that actually takes root in your heart and your mind, there will be shouts of joy because you realize that the enemy Satan has been slain and defeated. Christ did not stay buried in the tomb, but on the third day, he was raised from the dead. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our greater David. We praise you for King Jesus, the unique representative for your people. Christ, the anointed Messiah, who lived a sinless life, we praise you for the life he lived. When we look at our own lives, we realize that as our representative, he lived the life that we could not live. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but praise be to God, the eternal Son of God lived the perfect sinless life in our stead. Father, we praise you for his death. We recognize that we, because of our sin, deserve the penalty of sin, which is death. But Christ stood in our place, died our death. Father, he is our victor. He is our champion. He is the great giant slayer. And for those of us in Christ this morning, I pray, we pray that you would help sustain our faith 
in the present and for the present as we remember your provision in the past. The battle belongs to the Lord. You are the one who redeems, who has rescued us from the pit. And Father, for those outside of Christ this morning, may they see that there is only one remedy for sin, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And may this be the day where they repent and believe in the greater David this very day we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we respond.